Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Floyd's Rising with me today, Les Borsai from Wave Financial. He runs an NFT fund. Welcome to the show, Les. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Les, tell us, how did you get into NFTs? I mean, sadly with me, everything is a really long story. I think, you know, as I'm a little bit older these days, you know, 53, I'm finding more and more I draw on, you know, my experiences kind of historically to get me where I'm going. As a kid, you know, I watched my father, who was an Eastern European immigrant, spend a lot of time at the swap meet. And it was treasure hunting. So I'd say that was like the first experiential thing that happened in my life where I I started thinking about collecting and things like that. So I was a card collector. Sadly, it wasn't high value sport. It was hockey versus, you know, maybe I should have done baseball, but I just really loved this idea of collecting. And it was somehow really soothing to me to try to figure out prices based on bent cardboard corners or why one card might've been unique. And then I just started collecting lots of things throughout the years. So as it relates to, to NFTs, you know, I had a history in the entertainment background. So I always had a creative sense in my work life and in my personal life. So it just was like this convergence of all those things. And I would say that, you know, I got into crypto in 2013. In 2017, I did buy my first punk. And I think you guys were curious about which one that is. And I wish I could remember because I lost the wallet. And back then, you know, I ended up keeping the crypto kitties though. You know, yay me. They weren't even Gen Zero founder cats. Um, but um, I can't tell you how many times I looked for that wallet. You know, you end up having like seven computers laying around going, I know it's somewhere around here. That was really like the first NFT I had ever bought in 2017. Can you just take us through like, because, you know, we've interviewed people who've claimed CryptoPunks, you know, back in 2017. And yeah. we've interviewed, you know, I mean, a lot of people bought CryptoPunks recently, but you bought CryptoPunks, actually like paid money for it in 2017, yeah. which which yeah. might might be a, you know, yeah. more impressive achievement than actually claiming it for free. Yeah, I, I, I did buy it. And you know, what's really funny about that, you know, I was going back through my emails in 2017, because I thought maybe there'll be a wallet address in here somewhere. And what I did find, there's this really uh, great guy. His name's Paul Toilette. And, you know, I've known Paul for a really long time. Paul, you know, came from this punk rock background and he started an event called Coachella, which you may or may not have heard of. And I found the email from 2017 with a link to Larva Labs where I'm like, hey, Paul, you know, you should really maybe consider getting one of these. And it was really great to talk to him again in 2020 and say, yeah, maybe you should have got one of these, dude. Why, why, why did you why did you show CryptoPunks in 2017? Like, what was it about it at that time that sort of attracted you and, and actually made you an evangelist like so early? I think I, I think it was just the fact that, you know, I knew Paul's history and, you know, and I had that history from music um, and it wasn't the first collectible I bought. I, I, I think the way it worked was the punks came first and then the cats came. But I actually think I bought the kitties first 
and then went back to the punks. That's why I bought one and I didn't do the mint because I heard about it after. So, and as a matter of fact, there's this guy from Consensus who, who turned me on to him. His name was Jesse Grushek. I'm giving you all the details so you know my story isn't bullshit. Who, who had told me about him? And Jesse just always seemed to be early on everything. And I, I remember too, you know, they used to do this Consensus event in New York. I don't remember when it was necessarily, but it was called Ethereal. And they were really the earliest guys with all the NFT stuff. I mean, they had little NFT lounges and, you know, back then, I don't remember what those NFTs were, but I'm sure they were like ETH rocks or something. <laughs> so. Given your background as in the entertainment industry, um, it seems like you were surrounded by obviously music people who were also early adopters uh, of crypto and NFTs. I was thinking more in terms of like, you know, the kinds of um, instincts that you need uh, working in, say, A&R in the music business, yeah. you're trying to identify uh, emerging talent. Do you think that you you kind of ported over some of that, some of that antenna in the music business in terms of, you know, recognizing and identifying a good investment or, uh, you know, really interesting project when it came to, to crypto uh, artists as well as NFT projects? Well, that's really insightful because the answer is yes across the board. And I would say a lot of people in the music business actually didn't connect to this early on. Um, there were very few of us. Um, I think the only other person that kind of got there really early was Naz's manager at the time. I think his name was Anthony Salah. He was an early kind of Coinbase investor. I mean, there were a few guys that definitely got there early, but, but I don't think in the granular way I did necessarily because going back to my history, you know, when I was moving out of music, I was always trying to get to things early and that could have been iPhone apps, which I, you know, was also early in and, you know, the market really didn't exist in the way this market exists. But, you know, what you just touched on is everything. If you took a look at the music business back then and, and going back to when I was 17 and 18, you know, the first thing I ever did was bring over rave bands from London. That's how I started my career. And um, well, not just London, but England as a whole. And what we had is this really strong sense of community with those bands. And if you were a fan of Primal Scream, you probably liked the Happy Mondays or the Shaman or the Stereo MCs or the Farm or Massive Attack. And, and there was this community that was happening in real life that was connected by music or experiences. And on the A&R side, yeah, it was the same thing. You know, if you were spending time with these bands, you would always hear about the next band that was coming and you'd see the next band. And if that was the business of music, it gave you a distinct advantage understanding what the ethos was and what the community was. So you do take those skill sets. And the good news is, is you're not kind of relegated to having to find one band. You know, you find these incredible teams. And I think that's where, you know, my partnership with David Seymour and, and having an understanding of venture capital helped because there was real diligence taking place. So everything I've done, including the fund is based on that. And, you know, when we go a little bit deeper, I, I don't really think the singular applications of cryptocurrencies and NFTs apply right now. I think there's something else happening that's very different than just singular pieces of art. And when we look at, just to close this thought out, when we look at you know, the musicians that were in the crypto space, guys like RAC, you know, or even Blau, or these guys, even Dylan Francis, who were early 
you know, to me, they were as much crypto guys as they were DJs. And then it emerged, you know, and then you had the connection between those guys and Steve Aoki and you just saw it uh, growing. Um, and I would say today, you know, if we take a look at all of the traditional artists, the one that has really made the transition the best is Snoop. And I, I've done a couple of things with artists, you know, Avogache, which the, there's a lot to unpack here, was the first thing I really looked at deeply again uh, after my early punk experience. And, you know, I was able to put a little pump into that game really, really super organically. So, okay, there's a whole bunch to unpack there. Tell us this, this story of how you went from being that early sort of crypto kitties, punk buyer, and then how the decision came about for yourself to, to start an NFT fund. So I didn't start an NFT fund. I started a company with a guy named Dave Seymour and it's called Wave Financial. And what Wave is, we started at the end of 17 and we are a regulated you know, RIA in the United States. We're, we're an investment advisor and we do a whole bunch of things. We have a couple of venture funds. Uh, we work with the Cardano Ecosystem Fund. We create financial products and we do wealth and treasury management to create yield around companies and high net worth individuals, their, their tokens. So that's really what the business was. But as I personally got interested again in, you know, NFTs and collectibles and started spending a lot of time in the space, I had some success just personally. So my partners came to me and said, hey, we really want you to do this fund. And I took the position of why? I don't want to. Well, what's that have to do with asset management? And I think after about the third conversation, they were like, hey, dummy, you know, art's an asset. And I'm like, oh, it didn't even register because that's not why I was doing it. I was doing it because I was curious, like everything else I've ever done. And I wanted to see you know, where this would go and what it actually meant and what it was about. I was actually more curious than a lot of the young guys at the company, which was frustrating at the time. But they really just came to me and said, this is something that would be good. And they were 100% right because the timing was good. And that, that's one where I missed the timing. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have done it. So I'm happy they pushed me into it. How big is the fund? And I guess, what, what do you currently hold if you're, if you're uh, able to kind of disclose yeah, you're, well, yeah, of course, completely transparent on everything. So, you know, when we had the, the thesis of how the fund would operate, it, it was always going to be 70% collectibles and 30% kind of infrastructure plays, whether that was play to earn or guilds or, you know, DAOs or, you know, anything that had to do with the expansion of this metaverse economy is what I like to call it. I think in the first month or so. And it's only been live for, for a couple of months and, and the demand has been incredible. Um, we raised for that fund something like $13 million and it's up about 120% right now in about six weeks. So there is that advantage to being early. And I think understanding how you can filter through everything that's coming. If you want to look at the fund, you can. Um, everything's public under the address. It's called non-fungible fund. You know, the things that we did were coming in early to pieces. And, and for me, you know, a lot of the 6K to 10K drops are really interesting, dependent upon the roadmap, you know, for those drops. And I also need to say is, you know, when we were setting up the fund, we didn't do it like a traditional bank ran fund. I did it more like a record company in some ways. And, and you know, I'm fortunate enough to work with this guy named Veg Surfer, who runs the fund. And his name is John. 
And, and John is just, you know, a guy like me in the sense that he's curious. He wants to know what's coming next. And he spends just about as much time as I do looking at this stuff, which is what is required. And I would say that I look at it just about every night from about six till two in the morning after having a full day's of work. <laughs> but um, it's what it requires because the space moves so fast. But in the fun to answer your question, we have everything from doing a cool cat sweep to Justin Aversano's twin flame or a grail cryptode. Um, and at the same time, we also have equity investments and token investments and different um, types of technologies and, and play to earn gaming because I do believe in that future as well. So uh, is most of the fund essentially sort of secondary sales? I mean, you, I mean, you mentioned Cool Cut, which would have to be a secondary sale given the funds only started, uh, I think you said six weeks ago. But or, or are you primarily sort of doing primary mints, sort of whitelisting or <laughs> well, yeah, what is I kind mean, of the strategy? It, there? It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of, of each. And, and I would say, look, the whitelisting is really a funny thing. I taught my 14-year-old nephew how to get into NFTs about five months ago. And he's done really well. He's 15 now and has something like $63,000 in the bank at a 15-year-old. That's pretty good for his future. And he earned it. But by way of earning it, I mean, he might have sat in a Discord for seven hours having to draw pictures of penises to get on a whitelist. <laughs> That's not exactly you know, our fun thesis to get on the whitelist and what it requires. So, you know, when we do whitelist, I think there's a little more of a professional tint to it, but we do do drops in certain cases, but I actually do like the secondaries better because it's just an easier way to see the inefficiencies in the market and understand, you know, why certain attributes and properties are, are valuable in these pieces. But when we do deals like anyone else who does deals, we're typically getting uh, into those deals long before the public. So that could include a collectible or not, because all of these things will have businesses in some ways that emerge. And, and they're not just collectibles. You know, when I'm thinking about these drops, the roadmap has to be intact. And I think what we're going to see is this, you know, the roadmaps becoming earlier and earlier, instead of having to wait for a play to earn game that's being deployed with a drop, you're going to see them drop together pretty quick here. So given that the fund is pretty early in its life, um, I think you said six weeks, um, maybe, you know, a good question would be, what would be your kind of personal thesis on, on essentially what makes an NFT collectible valuable? I mean, let's, let's just restrict it to that at, at this point in time. Um, well, that's a really good question because it's different than I think the way a lot of people think about this. You know, I'm not there yet, to be honest with you. When I first looked at the space and I looked at these singular drops and I looked at the drops on places like Rarible or Foundation, while I thought some of the art was beautiful, I also understood that this wasn't the thing that was moving the market. It wasn't the thing that was doing the volume that OpenSea was doing. So what was the differentiation? And what I realized was it was generational. So I went back to, I mean, if you go back to my long history, you know, I've always been kind of fascinated by the, the anti-hero. I think we talked about punk rock earlier. You know, I think, you know, back when the cypherpunks and the manifesto and, and all of that stuff is really fascinating to me. And, and I think counterculture in general is not that this is counterculture, but we look at Wall Street bets and what happened there was gamification of banking, which those two words just don't go together. And they did. So you have these Reddit groups 
that go long on hedge funds that have shorted GameStop because they're annoyed they shorted GameStop. And I just thought that was brilliant. You know, that is <laughs> that is a different type of rebellion. And I think a lot of that attitude spills over into the DAOs. And, you know, what those DAOs help do is create liquidity. And those DAOs are controlled by this younger generation. And I spent a lot of time, you know, in those groups because back when I was spending time with bands um, and I was their age, you know, I can relate to what's happening. You're just doing it in a digital medium now. And the, there again, you know, with my imagination, there is no distinction between the digital medium and the real world in some ways. It's all one thing to me. And it's why we see the gig economy emerging in the metaverse. And the point was all of this liquidity gave us the ability to do things we couldn't do in the real world. You know, I'm an art collector, you know, being able to sell art immediately because I have an offer. It doesn't happen too often. What this really was about to me was an answer to this generation being left the worst economy in history and their response. We don't really care. And it's all based on this premise of trade and it's in a funny way. And it's why the, the bit larger drops make sense because they're taking what they sell on a primary and it's being sold on a secondary. And, you know, and then there's token launches that are connected to it with these really interesting roadmaps and the imagination that's connected to what they're building just has no bounds. I mean, these guys can create an identity out of an NFT that becomes an avatar in the metaverse. And it also could be a financial instrument or not. And I just love the idea that they blend all of these different sectors and variables and they're able to monetize it. So if we really distill that down to the way I think about it, I love innovation. I always have and anything, you know, that kind of stops it is just irritating to me. And I've been a guy that's pitched VCs and I hated it. It was absolutely terrible. Like I would never want to do that, you know, to justify why my idea might be better than someone else's in a room of people, you know, that don't have my vision and I have to convince them. And I think this interesting mechanism allows for the resource these kids need to create. And that's what it's about to me right now. And I'm not saying that won't change, you know, to these singular pieces of art, but it's why I'm not super enthusiastic about music yet, unless there's an innovation underneath that enhances the business and enhances the experience. That's a really interesting kind of thesis. I've never actually heard that articulated. So, you know, following from that, um, it would seem to me that you kind of view, <laughs> weirdly, uh, sort of these NFT drops as kind of Zoomer sort of pitch decks, essentially, to <laughs> where it's it's kind of like a tease of of what they could do with with the fun they could get and 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 what they can build. I mean, I mean that at least from the non kind of rug pull sort of sort of cash grab kind of things that seems to be what you're kind of alluding to. Right. Well, even more than that, they're not pitch decks. They're actually, they're doing their own seed funding. Right. And we're past the pitch because they buy into their own ideas and they have confidence in them. 
And Generation Z is a lot like Generation X, which I am. And I think the difference is they have resource and they have the same drive I had. I mean, shit, I was 16 and working. You know, I wanted to be a concert promoter. By the time I was one, you know, I would get on a bus at five in the morning, you know, because I couldn't drive because I'm sure I got in trouble. And I mean, as a little older, probably more like 18, I guess. But, you know, I'd get on a bus and I'd get to my concert job and I would do that. And then I would go to a show and then I would try to get home and, and I'd do it again. And if you spend time with these kids, they're remarkable. They just create and they're creating their own seed funding because they don't want to ask permission. And you're right. Look, there's a lot of rug pull. Sure. But if you don't think these kids and the people that buy are smart enough to identify a rug pull, you know, they are the, the ones that are core. I think we get into trouble when people are entering the space that don't really connect to the space and understand what's, what's happening. And it's like anything else. If you're going to invest in something, you better know what it is and who's behind it and why it could work. And I think a lot of this also stems back to when Sean Fanning and Sean Parker came to the record companies to talk about Napster. And you watch the record companies who hadn't created a thing in decades, you know, pull back and say, eh, you know what, it's our IP. And we're going to go ahead and hold on to that. But thanks for coming. When they had the opportunity to accelerate the business and, and they just, you know, in that point in time, ended up drowning because they were too afraid to loosen up their position and walk into innovation. And what I love about what's happening now, it's like, we don't need to ask permission anymore. And I, I say we like I'm 23, I'm 53, you know, but those kids don't have to ask permission. And the other thing that makes the space so robust is the corporate adoption. You've never seen it this fast. Do you think it's because they want to innovate? Of course not. They're scared shitless on what's happening and why they're not part of it. You know, it's the only reason you see Carl's Jr., you know, using crypto acronyms in a Twitter feed. And I, I just think the, the guys that end up doing this, I mean, why does Nike buy artifacts, you know, and, and why does... G money, take a, you know, take, take an opportunity to Adidas. It, it, it's because, you know, it's just not as simple as a football team, you know, launching an NFT and thinking it's going to work. Influencers don't work in the same way. Athletes, celebrity, it doesn't work in the same way. If you look at the celebrities and the athletes that are being successful, it's because they became part of the community in an organic way. It's not that hard to figure out. Do you buy any uh, non-Ethereum NFTs? Uh, I do. Or, uh, I does, do. The, does the fund buy non-Ethereum NFTs? It, the fund does. Okay. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. We were pretty early on small brains and small brains were amazing. It was launched on a layer two, which you know didn't happen too often. We didn't see too many layer twos launching their own NFTs. And it wasn't a native token to Arbitrum, which was the layer two. It was a magic token. And again, the community was robust for these things. And we bought into the small brains and there was this marketplace called the treasure marketplace that sold a lot of this stuff. And there's a lot of interesting things in there that tie together. You have, um, you know, the treasure marketplace has their legions and their Genesis legions and the seed of life and, and all of this ties together. And, and I've never seen a community actually as active as the board ape community until I saw the small brain community. And the idea was to buy early, 
to stake, again, there's that component, your small brain and gather IQ points. And as IQ points gathered, simultaneously, your smalls, if they were staked, were launched to the moon. Sounds so ridiculous. I'm seriously sitting here listening to myself. And then they come back and you have the ability to breed or collect magic tokens. And and this marketplace for something that a lot of people don't know about, the same way a lot of people don't know about, you know, really kind of the Avogadro stuff has huge volume. I mean, I think they outperformed Axie Infinity in volume at a certain point. And to give you kind of just another little glimpse of their community, I had done something that was just a, a pretty straightforward newscast about NFTs. And I had a small as one of the photographs that was shown on this television show. And when the community got a hold of that, they just like really rapidly started passing it around. And, and it was just funny to me because here was this finance show being passed around by Zoomers. Bitcoin was kind of the first cryptocurrency. It has always been the top sort of market cap cryptocurrency always today. You know, some people think for all time. For the longest time, CryptoPunks was the highest sort of value market cap NFT. And a lot of people thought that it was always going to be that way. It was going to be like Bitcoin. But it was flipped pretty pretty quickly, <laughs> you know, um, from 2017 to, to today. Do you kind of hold that as, you know, any kind of significance? Do, uh, how, do you, how do you view sort of the fact that the OG sort of NFT got flipped so quickly? Whereas in the cryptocurrency space, um, that's kind of not, not really how things happen. Well, I mean, the distinction is, and, and the CryptoPunks weren't the first, you know, we, we had things like quantum and colored coins and, you know, things on Bitcoin, I think the rare peppies. And, but... You know, the significance of the crypto punks. And now we have the controversy, the, the small controversy of the V1 crypto punks. But, you know, look, the crypto punks were the first thing on the Ethereum chain. So that made it this benchmark moment. Whereas to me, when I look at the apes, well, that was something else. You know, you had these airdrops, you had this roadmap, you had this club. And it really, what it signaled was a different kind of ownership. If you remember back with the punks, for instance, I think the funks came out, P-H-U-N-K. And in a funny way, they were actually more punk because they just came out and completely ripped the artwork. But, you know, everyone gets up in arms. I think, you know, the crypto punks, Larva Lab sends out a letter and, you know, they had this really different thought process on, on how they wanted to treat their IP where the apes were something else entirely. I, you know, have done a lot of licensing and IP licensing and still do a fair amount for companies. And what I loved was the ability to pass rights, because this is something that's disruptive. It's disruptive with traditional businesses like music publishing and music masters. And if I'm able to have the rights, does that sustain a longer life for an NFT? And the answer is, yeah, probably. You know, because then you can go do deals based on the ownership of your ape. So does that ingest and, you know, additional value into those pieces? Yes, that's the innovation again that we're talking about. So does it surprise me that it would flip? No, there's more activity around the NFT. 
There's more resource. I heard they're going out to do a raise, which will give them even more resource. And you don't see the punks doing that. But what you do see is people replicating the punks, which is something that's happened in art forever. I mean, Warhol's been replicated 75 million different ways. Um, and you don't see an active roadmap out of them. I think the last thing they've done that's active is the Mebits. You know, what, what do they have? Three things. Larva Labs has the autoglyphs, the Mebits, and the CryptoPunks. And, you know, the activity that's happened around the CryptoPunks, you got to credit G Money for a lot of it, or, you know, kind of the big punk holders or artifacts. You know, when artifacts forged the virtual punk and the sneaker, you know, which led to clone X's, well, that's a direct line, but it wasn't created by Larva Labs. So when you look at everything and, you know, why something is happening, I think there's, there's a clear distinction. One of the things I'm most impressed with right now is the box collectibles. You know, I bought these things and they accelerated in value. And when you went to gala games, you know, that were pretty incredible. You know, you could play town star and gala games. And all of a sudden you had to play to earn where you're importing your box collectible into the gala games universe. That again, there's that innovation. I mean, isn't it funny? Like for the last 44 minutes that we've been really talking about all this, you know, I really lean less into the art aspect because I think there's so much more here. And, and anyone who says, you know, it's a bubble, it'll go to zero. You know, it's not a fucking tulip. There's innovation and technology connected to a lot of this thought and it's thoughtful and it's funded. So if it goes away, you know, it goes away because everyone stops being innovative. The thing that pretty much everyone that I'm hearing think will be a thing is music NFTs. So, I mean, so far, I mean, I, I would say they, they've definitely kind of lagged behind sort of visual art NFTs, but everyone thinks it will be a thing. What, what do you think? I think, you know, I was involved in this drop with a huge DJ and it taught me a lot. And again, why is it going to be a thing? And, and I won't get into who, who called me, but I had a publisher call me wanting me to talk to their artists. And I'm like, why? And, you know, everything comes down to what well, we want to sell NFTs. And it's like, well, that's not interesting. We've done that. Um, so, you know, with music being a thing, I, I'm more interested. So I bought the Blau track not too long ago, I think. It doesn't matter what we paid, but we bought this track because I wanted to do a Reg D offering and I wanted to license it in the metaverse. And I wanted to, you know, play with the rights because they transferred. That's interesting to me. If we can create opportunity and create some uh, other ways to, to monetize because of the way the rights flow, that that's also interesting. But I don't want to just take music and toss it out there as an NFT. You know, if we take music and bust it up into a million pieces and those pieces represent governance in a DAO, well, that's much more interesting. But, you know, you have to deal with some of the security components if you're tokenizing, for instance, which thank God my company can do because we're regulated and we know how to do that. We've tokenized whiskey barrels. Why not tokenize music? But it has to be the right artist. And I don't believe most of the artists in the space are the right artists because they don't understand the community. And there's been very few, in my opinion, that have really crossed over to understand it right. Snoop's one of the ones who has. I think 
Mike Shinoda has, I think. There's been a few others. I think clearly Aoki has and Diplo and the DJs have um, figured this out a little bit. But even saying that, you take that subset, how many of those artists were really, you know, integrated into the community? And that's why Snoop's been so successful because I think, you know, the group around him and him, you know, they have an understanding of, of what this is actually about and, you know, what opportunities, you know, can come to it. The majority of sort of uh, VC investment into NFTs has have been into sort of GameFi slash play to earn kind of projects. Um, do you think that is, will going to be a, a thing? I mean, I mean, you know, Axie Infinity is being pretty big. Are you personally yeah. investing in a lot of these projects? Do you yes. think that will actually really transform like the gaming industry, like like a lot of people think? I, I don't know that it'll transform it, but the answer is yes across the board. And, you know, if I take a real life kind of example, it's going to sound terrible, but, you know, I always thought my nephew was kind of the one that wasn't, how do I say this without being a dick? The brightest out of the family. And I was wrong. So I feel bad about that. I was really wrong. What it was is that traditional education wasn't something he connected to. And I can relate to that. I didn't connect to it for all sorts of reasons. And when I put him into an environment that, you know, he understood, you know, all of a sudden math became easy. And it was because, you know, he was counting his tokens or how they applied. And, you know, if he has the ability to do play to earn right now and, you know, maybe do some other things around traditional education in a different kind of environment, that's really exciting to me. Play to earn is not going anywhere unless the regulatory side of it really kind of jumps into it and, and starts to define, you know, what what is compliant and what isn't. And we saw this with online poker a little bit. Now we're talking about kids. But like with all other kind of digital currencies and in gaming, you know, this is a global thing and, and it'll be different kind of procedures in different regions. Um, so I don't think it's going anywhere. But, you know, you see this mad rush with a Microsoft acquisition of, you know, whatever, Blizzard and Activision. And everyone kind of looking at the space. Well, there's a reason, but I think traditional companies, and I heard something about Ubisoft, you know, getting really bad feedback on trying to do some NFT stuff. And I think that's going to be the problem with the traditional guys is, is they're not going to take the reputational risk and ingest cryptocurrency into their games because they already have successful franchises that are massive. And I think there'll be a market for the massive AAA games, but I think what we're seeing is different. And I think Companies will emerge to be the new Activisions that do this just a little bit differently. And it all really boils down to Web3 and what the ethos is of that. You know, when we take a look at decentralization and cryptocurrency and privacy, those are going to be the new tenants of what, what emerges. And, and I just laugh at the Facebook stuff. I think they just sold Diem actually the other day. But I, I laugh at the Facebook stuff because everything Facebook has been about, if we go back to Cambridge Analytica, it doesn't even connect to the ethos of Web3 yet. I can toss meta out there as something that does. And, and, and it, it's just insulting to me that whoever is, and it's probably Zuckerberg, is coming up with that, isn't connected to the audience right now. And I think that's what the mad dash is when we go back to, you know, we better get into the space. You know, someone in a board meeting, here's how we do it. Name it meta. 
but fuck privacy. Since you brought up Facebook, you know, we got to talk metaverse, right? Everyone thinks metaverse and, and okay, let, let me define what, what metaverse kind of means in, a, in an NFT context there. There's a lot of projects selling land, selling a lot of land. Uh, I would say most of them are kind of isometric, you know, kind of Roblox slash Minecraft kind of inspired um, universes. That I mean, that's what most people sort of see as kind of metaverse slash NFT sort of projects are. What do you think of, you know, that kind of metaverse from an NFT's perspective? Is, is that going to be a thing? Yeah. I mean, I think it is a thing. If you go back to things like the small brains, you know, you actually had to buy a piece of land to do some of the staking. If you've actually had the Quest 2 on and, you know, have traveled through crypto voxels or Decentraland or one of these places, you really get a sense of where we're at and, and what this is actually all about. And land ownership is land ownership. I remember when, you know, Decentraland and crypto voxels first came out, I was like, this is fucking nuts. I don't understand it. Like I didn't. I'm just like, yeah, never. I don't get it. And then there was a shift and I was like, oh, I get it. And I think we now see modern um, real estate development companies developing the metaverse. Now we see, you know, kind of industry emerging in the metaverse. And, you know, I grew up in Anaheim, which I grew up probably two blocks away from Disneyland. So, you know, if you live in Anaheim, especially at that time, you can't help but have that Disney influence seep in everywhere. I mean, shit, every night at 930, you'd have these explosive fireworks going off in front of your house uh, that were coming from the Magic Kingdom. And if you don't have the imagination and understand that real life Web3 meta, it's all the same in some ways. And you can build these incredible places and, and you can go as far as your imagination wants to go. And I, I recently spoke on a panel and accidentally said, you know, it's, it's a pity Walt Disney isn't alive because I'd love to see what he would build in the metaverse. And it's just so true. You know, you can build in a way you've never been able to build and the experience is just as real. Um, when you are able to fly because you're doing this immersion or, or workout or, you know, have a lightsaber and exercise with it um, because things are being hurled at you, that's our ready player one moment. And I don't think people realize how close we are and that's cool. You know, everything that's been imagined is actually happening. What's been your sort of most lonely, but ultimately kind of vindicated kind of NFT play? Um, meaning like something that you've done where it wasn't hot at the time, kind of like there was no one <laughs> really along with you, but you kind of believed in it and, and it kind of paid off. Has, has there been any place like that? But you and maybe you yeah. can share the story. My favorite one is, is, you know, one of my board apes, you know, when I was looking at it again, you asked a question earlier, you know, is it a drop or is it a secondary? And, you know, look at it, honestly, I don't have the time or the patience to get on the whitelist. I don't think I've ever been on a whitelist in my life, which sucks. I really should figure out how to do that. But, you know, I do a lot of things in secondary and as a, as a collector, one of my favorite things is, is I found this board ape. And I noticed at the time that the trippy hat that he had, it was incredibly rare. There was only 65 of them. And I will spend hours on OpenSea or, you know, any site that sells directly. And, and I don't remember how fast the board apes sold out, to be honest with you, but I'm sure it was a secondary purchase. But I found um, this trippy hat and then I 
noticed he was a zombie. And then I noticed he was undervalued compared to everything else that was selling, not just with the same qualities, but kind of in the same ranking, because I'm sure we had rarity tools at the time I bought it or not. I can't really remember. So anyway, this trippy hat zombie, um, if you looked at how many there were, there were three. So I bought it. And at the time I'm like, God, you know, I just can't believe I spent that much on it. And I spent an ETH and a half on that ape. You know, what ultimately happened is the apes exploded. And then, you know, I was able to get the mutants and the kennel dogs and everything else that came with it. And, and that was one of those moments of, oh, wow, glad I held on to that. That's a pretty interesting early, you know, step forward. I mean, it was the same thing I did with Ethereum. And, and you're right, it was all connected back to the music business of being early. And I think one of the big regrets I have is I, for whatever reason, you know, I had a mutant to trippy hat zombie and, you know, I sold it for some reason. I mean, rarely sell anything. And, you know, I think a month later, you know, it sold for like 10 ETH more. I'm like, God damn it. And it wasn't even for the money. Like, it's so funny because like the money didn't even matter. It was kind of like, wait, I want them back. And, and I've done that a couple of times. But, you know, I don't know if it's vindication or just being right about something, whether it was on purpose or accident. Awesome. Um, I mean, we could we can go on for hours, but I think the t- time is up and I really appreciate the time that you spend, uh, Les, with us on the show. This has been an episode of uh, Flows Rising. Um, thanks, Les, for, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.